The first playtest survey is out for the one D&D playtest for Backgrounds and Races. We're going to talk about some updates to the Sly Flourish Patreon, including updates to the City of Arches and a new adventure toolkit available to patrons of Sly Flourish. We're going to talk about the Spelljammer errata that just happened. We're going to do a Kickstarter spotlight on the Dungeon Delvers Guide by Level Up 5e. We're going to do a product spotlight on Plain Gia. We're going to talk about the idea that 5e isn't even 5e compatible and what we can do about it. And we're going to recover the remainder of the August 2022 Sly Flourish Patreon questions. All today on the Lazy D&D Talk Show. I'm your pal, Mike Shea from Sly Flourish, here to talk about all things D&D. This show is brought to you by the patrons of Sly Flourish. Patrons of Sly Flourish get access to all kinds of exclusive materials, previews of upcoming products, things like the City of Arches, things like the secret of Summervine Villa, which I'm going to show off today, access to all kinds of exclusive features. But most of all, they help me put on shows like this. If you want to be a patron of Sly Flourish, you can find a link down in the show notes below. And to the patrons of Sly Flourish, thank you so much for your support. Two weeks ago, the 1D&D playtest first playtest came out for or Origins, which includes races and backgrounds. And they just put out the survey for this as well. If you go to your D&D Beyond page, you can find a, a section for your one D&D playtest. And in that is a link to take the survey. You can, of course, download the PDF and read it. And you can also take the survey. I have not yet filled out the survey. I have till the 15th, right? I've got 11 days. So I'm going to make sure that I do it. But I wanted to spend a little bit more time actually playing with the playtest rules. I started a brand new campaign last night in which we are using the one D&D rules as the primary rules. And then we're using the player's handbook and other books for things that aren't in the playtest yet, obviously. But I don't really want to fill out the survey till I've at least had a chance to try some of the things out. So I, I wanted to do that. And I've got I've got a good 11 days from the time that I'm recording this to do that. And that should give me at least one session, one full session where I've been able to use them. They, You know, it's really not a lot of time from the time they give you the playtest to the time the survey's over. It's only a month. And how many people will have a lot of games in that month? But we're going to give it a shot. So that that survey is out. And this is your chance. This is, the, this is a good opportunity to tell Wizards of the Coast what you think about the things that you have found and i'll probably talk about my experiences once i've actually once i've actually used it my friends sean merwin and teos abadia have a talk show called the mastering dungeons podcast you can find a link to mastering dungeons in the show notes below they had a really good episode where they went in depth into the one d into the one dnd play test for origins they talked a lot about it they talked about what it meant they talked about some things i hadn't really considered when i was looking at it i highly recommend if you're looking for an in-depth look at the one d play test very two very even-handed very smart developers who have spent a lot big chunks of their life thinking about D&D and you want to hear what they have to say I would highly recommend that podcast they do a better job than I can do just in my little short amount of time fantastic a fantastic listen so again that is in the that is in the show notes below I wanted to talk a little bit about the couple of updates that I have for patrons of Sly Flourish so one of the big things I've been working on for the patrons of Sly Flourish is this thing called the City of Arches. The City of Arches is now a 38-page city source book for a city that is built around the idea of people coming in through these archways. There's these portals to all these other worlds, but they are not really working at the moment. But every so often, somebody wanders in. But in the City of Arches, there are many, many 
areas of adventure up in the mountains beyond it and in the depths below the city is very very old has many secrets many dark chambers and many things hidden but it is also a very open wonderful city where people live together and enjoy each other's company in the in the world above so it is a really really fun place to write about and this past month i added in a new feature called arcus the world of dead temples so one of the ideas here is that there is a entity known as the nameless king who built the city of arches the nameless king was cursed and banished off to the side his very name was removed from all history if you ever pick up a book that describes him the pages burn from the book a a celestial curse that just removed him from the world but he still wants to come back he's still out there and he's still trying to return well there was a world beyond this one that he ruled over called arcus and arcus he completely churned into a wasteland Let's see, we'll go down to page. Where is it? So Arcus is a one-page description of this previous world of the Nameless King, this world that he ruled over. And now it is completely destroyed. There's these huge temples that were built in his honor. There is all of these worshipers that worship him like a god, but he didn't care about them at all. And he basically used the world as this giant living battery. And he just sucked all the life out of this world. He even sucked the life out of the sun that hangs above it. There is now just an eclipsed, a permanently eclipsed sun hanging up in the sky and what little life exists on this planet at this point is sort of buried underground or hidden away or scavenging for whatever scraps they can find. So it is a tremendous world of, of dark adventure. And it's possible that the characters in the City of Arches might find a key that can link one of the archways to the world of Arcus and either see it or maybe even travel within it. So it is a one-page one guide added to the, to the City of Arches sourcebook. Patrons of Sly Flourish get access to this whole book. You can find it in your Patreon rewards and you can see this new. It is available right now. This has already been, already been released. This, this month, I also released a adventure toolkit called The Secret of Summervine Villa. This is also tied to the City of Arches, but it's a separate PDF. And the, the idea behind it, it's a, short, it's a short product, five pages long. And the idea behind this is that you can sort of build your own heist around this villa called Summervine Villa. And there is a patron here, Lady Elvenia Summervine, who kind of rules over the place. Her husband, Gaston, but he's kind of an idiot. And she is a member of the Golden Council. She is well-connected into the politics of the City of Arches, but she is, of course, also a cult leader. And she is running a secret group of cultists and a secret shrine, a secret temple down below her manor, very old temple that exists behind below the manor. Now, instead of offering a, a straightforward adventure that you can just pick up and run, my goal was to offer you all of the pieces that you need in order to build your own adventure using this location, including the inhabitants, a description of the villa, the goals that the characters might want to accomplish there, the locations that exist there. I, I am using a map that we had commissioned for the Lazy DM's companion. So we have a full color map the first time I've used a full color map in any of the products for Patreon. I hope you like it. And the and, and the, this also includes a VTT version of the map that's available to patrons as well. So all of the locations kind of filled out with descriptions, both longer descriptions so that you can get an idea what's there. But then also on the map is just a quick key that tells you exactly what's in the room that's on that one page. So if you print that out, it's all good. Situations that might be existing. Are there dinner parties going on? Are all the cultists kind of getting together? What's the, what's the current event or the current situation happening at the place? You can pick from a number of different ones. And what complications might happen when you're running it? So the idea behind this is that you can decide what kind of adventure you want to run are all sort of heist based adventures but they could be like you just need to go take her out or you need to stop the ritual that she's doing you need to steal something that she's got 
could be a different bunch of different goals that you could accomplish in this place. And then a bunch of different situations using the locations and using the inhabitants that are there. So it's a five page guide, including the title page available to patrons of Cyflourish right now. You can see it in your Patreon rewards. So this past week, there was a fair bit of drama with the with Spelljammer. Many different reviews from many different people, including myself, talked about what we liked about it and what we didn't like about it. There was one thing in there that got a lot of people very upset, and I can understand why. And it was the description of the Hadesy. The description of the Hadesy that was in there definitely hit on racial stereotypes that have existed and have been used in very detrimental ways for more than a century in the United States. And I remember when I looked at this and I was reading the book and I read the description of the Hadesy and I, I just cringed. I was like, why would you... Why would you do this? This idea of you have a race of mammals that look very much like monkeys that are enslaved by ship ship sailing visitors and sold into slavery. And I'm not even that steeped into like, you know, the cultural sensitivities that are going on in all of our products, which I think are very important, but I'm certainly no expert in them. And I read this as like, ah, so a lot of people were very upset about it. And Wizards of the Coast ended up pulling it back. So on D&D Beyond, they changed the description to this description. They said that future printings of the book will also change this description. While they were there, they also decided to change some of the mechanics that were going on. Some of the people described the Hadesy's glide mechanic and said the way the glide is written, Hadesy can move some like tremendous speed because all they have to do is jump straight up and then glide instead of moving, which was really dumb. And any DM is probably like, no, you can't really do that. So they went and they changed that as well. What was interesting is how quickly all of this changed. It, it changed in D&D Beyond. I think within two weeks of the release of the product itself, which meant that we now have physical versions of the book that have mechanical changes. It certainly has story changes, which, you know, it's questionable whether you have this product that now has this really kind of nasty description of these guys. It's really stereotyping, you know, bad stereotypical description of these guys. But also you now have mechanics that aren't the same inside your own book. And it, it kind of shows that like how D&D is treating D&D Beyond as sort of the authoritative version of the material, a switch from the physical books of the authoritative material and what's on D&D Beyond and everything like that is sort of secondary to D&D Beyond is the updated version. Wizards of the Coast, both on D&D Beyond and on the Wizards of the Coast website, had their apology for what happened in here. What I think is important here is they talk about that they are going to have like an internal review of the situation and take the necessary actions as a result result of that review. I really hope they do. And it, I don't think it's just a matter of making sure that they are culturally sensitive when they're writing the material they have. I think if, that if they take a review of their process inside and how they're producing the material that they're producing, that we could have better products overall. And I'm thinking about previous products that I've, that I've purchased from them, things that I've been critical of, like Descent into Avernus and Rhyme of the Frostmaiden, where, you know, boy, they had some cringy stuff. Certainly Rhyme of the Frostmaiden had cringy stuff in it too. And you're like, why did this... Why would anybody think that like having incest is in, in a description for a character is an important part of the story of the adventure? Like, why is that in there? Not only could we hit things like that, but overall, maybe our products will be better. Maybe the products we pick up from Wizards of the Coast are better if they have a more refined structure for how they're approaching their products. A lot of products are being developed in many, many different ways. And you have Radiant Citadel on one side, which was you know very well loved and very well regarded. And then you had Spelljammer right after it, which is kind of a mess. So I'm hoping that they go through that process and I'm hoping that the process for them to develop products changes for the better 
again, not just to cover cultural sensitivity, which I definitely agree with and I think is very important, but also to just make the products stronger products so that we don't have things like the Hay Disease Glide. So there is an errata. You can get a one a PDF of the errata. You don't need to have a D&D Beyond subscription to get it. And you can see all of the different things they've changed, including the, the fact that they, they, they changed the Hay Disease story completely. They basically just reduced the Hay Disease story into the three paragraphs from this longer from this longer thing. But they also change how its glide works. They have a bunch of different stat block changes. I noticed that they did not change my biggest complaint, which is the adult lunar dragon and the ancient lunar dragon both having the same breath weapon. Probably there's some spreadsheet somewhere that says that a 36 point breath weapon is appropriate. I don't think so, but not, you know, not, they're not asking me. So now we have this, we have this one page and it's not bad. You can print this out. You could slide it in. One thing, if you don't mind marking up your books, here's a little tip for you. If you don't mind marking up your books and you find that there's a rata, one thing that I do is I'll take a Sharpie and I'll just put a black dot next to any piece of material in the book that has been errated. So I know that I need to look up the errated version instead of looking at the book. But honestly, these days I'm doing a lot of what everybody's doing and I'm just checking out D&D Beyond anyway. So that was kind of a big, that was kind of a big event there. Yeah, Rango of Arg, you hit it, you, you hit it very specifically. Shows that the quality of control is low. It's, I've really, I've, I've made this argument now. Really, I think Rhyme of the Frostmaiden was where I was, I was very kind of public about it. But Descent into Avernus, I certainly had the same problem. That the process, their, their process for developing a product inside Wizard of the Coast is not working particularly well. It's really on the design side because the art design is fantastic. The art, the product design is great. The products look beautiful. Spelljammer is an amazing product. It looks really, really good. Rime of the Frostmaiden looks gorgeous. Descent into Avernus is one of the best looking adventures I've ever seen. I would really like them to have the same rigor in their design and development that they seem to have for the rest of the product. The art design is fantastic. The art design for these books are amazing. The physical quality of these books are amazing. They look as good as anything. And I think like when you look on Amazon, you look at the reviews, it's based on the fact that these books look really, really good, as good as anything in the industry. But the design, a lot of times you look at it and you're just scratching your heads. Like, how did how did this kind of stuff happen? How did this stuff make its way out? And I've talked a lot about it in my Spelljammer review before. So I'm hoping that the, when they look at their process, that they need to have a stronger, more rigorous process in design and development to make sure that things are going out, particularly now because a new version of the game is coming out. And I really want it to be strong. But I'll tell you, like I look at Tasha's and a lot of people, a lot of people that I talk to, they say, yeah, I, you know, Tasha's is where it kind of fell off the cliff. Like Tasha's was the last, Tasha's was the first book where I'm like, I can't really trust what's coming out of Wizards of the Coast anymore. All right. And it's sad. I don't want this. I want fantastic books. I want to love them. And they do a lot of amazing things. I was talking with Teo Sabadia and he's like, you know, they get a lot of criticism. They're not getting a lot of praise for the stuff that they do. Van Richten's Guide to Ravenloft is fantastic. I love that book. I love lots of the stuff they do in it. I like the adventure in, in Spelljammer looks great. I'm really excited to play that adventure. But there's also other problems and these are solvable problems. These are these are problems that are not like the reason why I'm picking them is it's not like it just happens. Like I'm not going to get on them about the fact that they had like the wrong amount of hit points for a monster or they had the wrong attack bonus that kind of stuff happens I, I get that that's not that's not the kind of problem that i'm worried about but there's general structure the idea that the adventure that's inside spelljammer doesn't play well with the races that are inside spelljammer it's one product like how did that how did that process work out where they said you know we ought to make it easy for them to pick these races and so that you can pick interesting fun spelljammer races and it makes sense for spelljammer and there's really not 
It, they don't. So it's stuff like that. It's, and I'm, I'm hoping that their process, I'm hoping this kicks them, A, to make sure to really watch this stuff. Because you, you don't put out a book like Radiant Citadel, this incredibly beautiful, inclusive book, both in the people who designed it and in the characters and the stories that exist in it. And then the very next one has this like tremendously racist description of a character race. And you're like, they're back to back. Like what process took place where you have these two products that are back to back. I have a feeling it's a very personality driven organization there and that that ends up causing some of these problems. I think that a lot of times you might get, you know, very artistically driven people that aren't process driven people and it needs to be a process driven organization. They are building products at the end of the day. The team behind Radiant Citadel is a very different team, but in, in some circumstance, you got to look at like a black box and say they are both two products by Wizards of the Coast and one of them was really, really great and, and very, you know, very embracing of diversity and then the other one had this i mean again if it, if it takes a 49 year old white guy to look at it and go wow are you sure you want to do that like you've, you've you've got an issue you've got a problem so let's take a look at a kickstarter so the the level up 5e level up advanced 5e is a is a DD replacement it is a book it is a series of books that can replace the core books of DD. they're really really good and i highly recommend them i've i've previewed them on this show before i specifically previewed the monstrous menagerie which is their monster book because you can take the monster book and you can drop those monsters right into your 5e game and in many cases the design of those is really really strong paul hughes was the lead designer behind the monstrous menagerie for level up 5e and he's also the lead designer for Dun the dungeon delvers guide which is a source book for both D&D 5e and level up advanced 5e they call a5e is the is the short and it is a, a single book it includes kind of everything new character options gears spells and mounts trips tra traps tricks and puzzles more monsters how-to guides dungeon building pre-made dungeons and a area let's see a guide to the haunted cities and midnight seas of underland a weird realm beneath the earth there is a you can you can actually right off of the right off of the kickstarter page you can get a preview that shows you what the book is going to look like gives you the credits shows the table of contents of all of the things that you're going to pick up here and looks really good really really fun book i've definitely backed it i'm very excited to pick it up i think it's interesting that all of these books always seem to contain a lot of things they, they a lot of times they contain new races or heritages they can it contain in this case new cultures new archetypes which are like subclasses and sometimes I'm like, I don't need all of that. Sometimes I just want a dungeon book to be about dungeons and like, I'll let the other, I'll let the other groups handle it. And particularly when we have this sort of D&D &D beyond world, I'm going to talk about this a little bit more about Plangea, where when we have, when so many people are, are kind of wrapped around D&D &D beyond as their tool, I want to see more tools that recognize that people are going to be using D&D &D beyond and are giving me tools and accessories I can use without necessarily having to modify D&D &D beyond or add add-ons and things like that. So I am very excited to pick up this book. I'm also glad to see that not a lot of the, that the page count is pretty extensive. It's almost 300 pages. And a lot of that, on, only a small portion of that is focused on character driven stuff. Like only it looks like about 54 pages of it are character driven material, the kinds of things you would have to customize or drop into your game. And then the remaining 200 plus pages are about building dungeons, which is what I am really, what I'm really excited for. So I know that a lot of times this kind of stuff, new heritages, new cultures, new classes, new subclasses, new monsters, all that kind of thing sells, it has a tendency to sell a book. It makes it something that a player might want to pick up, which I think is definitely a, a drive. Like how do we make this to be a book that's not just for DMs, but for DMs and players as well. Wizards of the Coast certainly takes this philosophy with the books that they put out. But man, sometimes I just want the one topic. I want to focus on the one topic. So I'm not being critical of this because I'm I'm definitely going to pick it up. I'm picking up physical, a physical version of the book 
I think it looks it looks really good. Paul Hughes, I've been talking with Paul Hughes a lot on various Discord servers. Super smart guy, really understands it. I first became aware of Paul Hughes's kind of drive in D&D when he was doing his like D&D monster manual on a business card and doing an analysis of the power of monsters. And we've talked about this a lot because and I think he and I are on much of the same page about the you know, the weird disparity and difficulty of monsters, which I've talked about on the show a lot. So I'm definitely interested to see uh, how this how this comes out and and what kinds of things it offers. And I particularly know that lots of people are interested in a more systemic way of running dungeons. And I think that this book can 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 scratch that itch. Morris from N World, who runs this, who runs these Kickstarters, he's run many 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 Kickstarters. One of the really cool things about backing a Kickstarter of his is that when the project is over, you get the product almost right away. It takes very little time to get the product. I don't even think he waits till he has the money. I think he just waits till the bulk of the charges are in, and then you get a PDF of the product because they've done all of the development work up front for this. So the Kickstarter is really a good way to promote what they've already done, but they. they they almost always deliver a product. So it is a, it is a, it is not a risky project to back. I backed it. I'm very, it doesn't say I did, but trust me, I did. I backed this product and I'm very excited to, I'm very excited to see what they've got. So check out the level up advanced five E dungeon delvers guide. There is a link to it in the show notes in the show notes below. So talking about another Kickstarter that I previewed a while ago and received and really like is Plangea. There is a link to pick up Plangea also in the show notes below. There is a preview you can pick up here. You can pre-order the physical book or you can pick up the, the digital book, the PDF for $20 and you can pick it up right now. And for $20, it is an amazing, it is an amazing deal. Reading this got me to think about a different kind of way of approaching products about approaching 5e products which i'm going to talk about when i when i when i go larger it is a 376 page full color source book it is massive i really became aware of sort of atlas games and what's going on because of the producer who's justin alexander if you know justin alexander he runs a blog called the alexandrian where he dives deep into role-playing games and particularly into DD. i've learned a lot from his blog i learned all about jayquay's style dungeons i learned about hex crawls i learned about point crawls there's all kinds of things that he's he, he dives into that go back into the history of role-playing games and kind of the periphery of of the history of role-playing games that offer tools that are really useful for running games and I've, I've i've taken and used a lot of these things and like it so when i heard that oh he's the producer of this book i'm like oh i'm definitely on board and i want to pick it up so the concept behind plain gia is that it is sort of a stone age wrapper around fifth edition so if you wanted to run a stone age style campaign with dinosaurs and sort of low societies and this is this is definitely the one to beat I, I there probably are other settings out there oh look they hyperlink the uh, the table of contents that's that's always always wonderful when they do that so the idea of a of a stone age rpg of an rpg that 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 covers a you know, covers that sort of that 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 level of technology i think is fascinating and one of the things beautiful Beautiful, beautiful artwork all throughout the book. It must have cost a fortune to make this. For 376 page book full of full color art is really, really expensive. 
But one of the things I love about this, one of the things that this really grabs me with is, and I felt the same way about Dungeons of Drakenheim when I previewed that previously, is this is a book written by DMs for DMs. They know the kinds of things that DMs want and need when they're going to run a campaign. It is very specific in the things that it offers. It offers clear guidance up front. It tells you what it is. It gives you these you know, what are the main themes up front? The world of bone and fire, the, the clan fire is sacred, unfamiliar everything, you right? The artwork evokes the same thing. It just right in, right in the beginning of the book tells you what this world is about and starts offering tools. And in this 370 page book, you get lots of tools to run these kinds of campaigns, which many of which you could just grab and sort of run. So if you want to run sort of a lost world campaign in your main one you could take a lot of material from this and move it to that lost world era. which i which I, I i i really i really dig there is a player section this is this is where i i think they did something here that i think is really really smart and i would love to see more designers grab onto this it's something i'm going to internalize and i'm going to think about a lot i've kind of done so unconsciously but i think there's actually a really conscious idea and that's the idea of creating what I'm going to call a 5e wrapper. And what I mean by a 5e wrapper is sort of like reskinning all of the skeleton mechanics of 5e with a different flavor. And the idea here is instead of saying like, oh, I want to have characters that fit the theme of my campaign. So I'm going to create new subclasses for the existing classes that fit that theme. Instead of doing that, you can reflavor the existing classes and just call them something different and describe how they operate differently in your world from a story standpoint, but keep all of the existing mechanics. So you could still have your champion fighter, but your champion fighter might be like the tribal fighter or the, the tribal champion. And you can call them something different and you can give them different lore about what it means. Like, what does it mean to be a bard? And here they actually have a different name for the bard. But the bard class is still there. All the mechanics for the bard class still work. All of the other stuff that a bard might pick up still works. And they've just rewrapped it and reflavored it with the material in here. The advantage of that is all of the tools that exist already to run bards and i'm thinking again about like dnd beyond that means they can use dnd beyond directly they don't have to modify anything they don't have to homebrew anything they can just use dnd beyond directly and just the story is what changes so the idea of like treating all of fifth edition and particularly the mechanics that sit inside of a tool like dnd beyond and rewrapping it with a whole different flavor of the kind of campaign you want to run so all the same tools are used the same way the players understand the mechanics completely even things like spells and everything like that you might reflavor a spell maybe a fireball isn't a fireball maybe it's the summoning of demonic forces from below but you're like, yeah but it still uses the fireball mechanics we don't have to replace the fireball we just call it something different we just describe it differently so that idea of like writing a big product like this and wrapping it around fifth edition's existing skeleton so that people don't have to change all of their systems or tools or everything that they use and just call it something different, I think is tremendously powerful. I think it's really, really powerful. And that way you're not like bringing up a bunch of subclasses that nobody's going to use. You're not going to bring up a bunch of new sort of house rules that have to be wired into what you know, the existing system. No, the mechanics are the same. Maybe you add a few new mechanics, a few things here and there, but generally speaking, the existing mechanics can be there. They, they mostly did that with here. There are, some, there are some subclasses. There are new subclasses in here, but it's not like 28 new subclasses. Instead, it says this is what 
what it's like to be a bard. One of the things I really dig is they have this sort of the pre what what prehistoric fantasy means. How do you get your head around this new thing? If you look at your medieval fantasy or traditional D and D, what is sort of a metaphor? What's the what's the trans what's the transition? Instead of having an airship, you have a, fly, a tamed flying behemoth. Instead of gold or coins, you have salt or trade goods. Instead of a tavern, you have a clan fire or a shady pool. So this is telling you like these are the common tropes that exist inside medieval fantasy. Here are the prehistoric versions of that that exist in this world. Really good, easy way, half a page, really good way to just grab the DM and pull them into this new world easily. 376 page book, but you don't have to just bury yourself in the entire book before you can understand it. Right off the bat, you're like, ah, a cheat sheet, right? Cheat sheets are great. You know, look at look at like how it describes. Look, what do the five senses mean in this world? How do the six abilities relate to this world? They're not changing the abilities. They're not adding a whole new mechanic for it. They're just saying what here's what charisma means in this in this world. Here's what the clan fire is. You know, all kinds. The whole book is written this way. It's so smart. It's a really really smart book that's really designed to 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 build a campaign. And, you know, I've, I've not seen a product come out of many of certainly first party, but even third party publishers that are, are publishing this kind of stuff that is, that really understands the kinds of material you need as a DM to be able to run, to be able to run this stuff. I went through the whole book. I didn't, obviously 376 pages didn't read the whole thing, but I, but I skimmed through the whole book and the whole book offers tons of tools, tons of like offering that right resolution of the material that's not so vague. This is really tricky for books to do. And I've, I've, I've looked at some other books recently. There's some other books that other third-party publishers have put out recently that I was really excited for. And then I read them and I was like, it's not really helping me. And the problem is like, it's getting the right level of resolution where it's not so wide that you're just offering a bunch of platitudes. You're just describing fuzzy things. And the book I'm thinking about in particular, it was, it was too abstract in its descriptions. And then too specific in its descriptions would be like you're just offering one encounter you can use one time and it's too railroady. It's too it's too much. I think detailed adventures would be like where the resolution, like I can only run this if I'm running this adventure. You want to find this resolution that offers a lot of specificity to the DM, things that they can grab and run that are specific enough to offer real things, but also general enough that I can plop them into my game, that I can under, I can move them around and plop them into my game. Figuring out what that, that, that focal length is, what that resolution is, like how, how focused do you want to be, but how general you want to be, is a tricky thing for a lot of books. And, and I would say not a lot of books handle it. I talked a lot about Van Richten's Guide as one of my favorite products from Wizards of the Coast last year. And one of the things Van Richten's Guide did that I loved is they wrote these like two or three paragraphs descriptions of a domain of dread and i used them in my wild beyond the Witchlight game and those paragraphs gave me just enough to build a really interesting unique world in many cases the characters are just witnessing it or seeing it but it gave me enough that i could quickly grab one of those and build some fun lore around it maybe build a scene or build some some descriptions of it in books and things like that it was specific enough to give me details that made it different from all of the other domains of dread but was small enough and focused enough that i could grab it and just run with it it wasn't this entire 300 pages of super detail on it so i really found that resolution to work well and i feel like a lot of the material that i'm getting and seeing in plangia hits that same level that that same level so i talked about a lot of player options again many of the player options that in here are not 
mechanic stuff. They're not like, here's a whole new race or here's a whole new class or here's a whole new subclass. Instead, it talks about what it's like to be a character in this world. Again, gorgeous, gorgeous art. Nice big trinket table. Look at that huge trinket table. Kinships. What are the connections between the races and the other ones? And again, same races that exist, but but they are handled much differently in this in this world. I really, I really, really dig it. Even Dragonborn. Dragonborn, which are kind of hard to hard to sit. Like, what does a dragonborn mean here? Very cool. One of the things I want to make clear is I I generally speaking, I'm not going to review products that I don't like. I want to focus, there's so many products out there that are outstanding that when we have the limited amount of time that we have to kind of talk about this, I don't want to talk about stuff that I don't like. I will certainly be critical of Wizards of the Coast products. They are the leader of Dungeons and Dragons. They are the group that is primarily responsible. They're the only first party publisher for Dungeons and Dragons. So when I do things like a Planescape or a Spelljammer review, oh, hopefully Planescape is good. When I look, when I do something like a Spelljammer review, in that case, I'm definitely going to be critical. I try to be even handed and talk about the stuff that I, that I love about it. Again, the production quality of, of Spelljammer is the best I've ever seen. And a lot of the accessories it has are really, really cool. So I'm going to be more critical about that kind of thing because they are so big. They are so mass markets. But for third-party products, I'm generally not going to review products that I don't like. I'm generally not going to put up a third-party product and be super critical about it. Mostly because there are so many good ones out there. I want to focus on the good ones. So, so that's something you're definitely going to see. You're, you're going to see from me. So here's an example where they are rewrapping classes. They have like the, you know, instead of a monk, they have the ascetic. They have, you know, instead of bards, they have like descriptions of bards. They do have sort of subclasses. So they have like the path of the far striker bard subclass. There's not a lot of them. From what I could tell, there's not a lot of subclasses in here. And I, I think that's pretty good because it means you can use all of the existing subclasses that already exist. They have the chanter instead of the bard who are like truth sayers, the druids. You know, what does it mean to be a druid in this world? What, you know, a gu the guardian instead of the paladin. They're taking existing classes and rewrapping them in the flavor of this adventure that, or in this, in this source book. And I just think that's such a smart way to build a product that is resilient for the future direction of D&D. It's resilient as, as more people are using like D&D Beyond as a first party digital tool, as things sort of, you know, as, as the walls kind of close in and Wizards of the Coast makes it a little bit harder to, for third party publishers to publish material. They have built something that can sit on that really well, that can work well with that, with that game. And I think that more publishers should be considering that. Lots about backgrounds, different backgrounds you can select. It's interesting to think about backgrounds from the standpoint of 1D&D. So 1D&D, now you have backgrounds that default to being custom built and also include a feat. So while the backgrounds that are in here are written around the original 5th edition style from 2014 of here's what skill proficiencies you get, here's what tool proficiencies you get, here's equipment that you pick up, here's some other ideals, bonds, flaws, and things like that. You can still very easily use these as the theme of a custom background in 1D&D and just add the feat that you think works well so the nice thing is even though there's pretty big changes happening with how backgrounds are handled in fifth edition at least according to the first one dnd playtest this still works we can still run this that is both a strength of the one dnd playtest staying backward compatible but also a strength of writing the way that they're writing in order to make sure that it fits with the world fits with the with the mechanics of the game we have 
So we're going to take a quick look at some of the things that it has to offer for Game Masters, which again, this book is really feels like it's written for Game Masters by Game Masters. And you can tell that the Game Masters section starts around page 100, 112, 113, 115, and there's still 376 pages in this book. So that's like 200 pages, 250, 250 pages worth of material. What is it like to run adventures in Plangea? What, how do you customize Plangea to fit your style? What, you know, primordial... Primordial horror, kinetic action. What kind of game do you want to run here? Lots of tools. Like, you know, this is really where he gets into, they call it like the dice drop. And the dice drop fits this idea of a point crawl. Again, Justin Alexander is what kind of brought the idea of point crawls to me. And the, you know, they have a whole different lines of like, what are the things that exist here? What are the connections that, that drive lots of tools to help DMs build adventures? What are journey, journey dungeons? He, they talk about the fact that you can build essentially a wilderness adventure the same way you build a dungeon adventure with rooms and instead of rooms and halls, you have locations and, and pathways. So that fits. That's one of the reasons I was very excited to pick this up was to see a world that's built around the ideas that I, w- I experienced when I was looking at Justin Alexander's stuff. And I, and I found it here. There, uh, that idea of a dice drop, I don't know if you've seen this, is like you take a handful of dice, you drop it on the table, and where the dice fall and what the dice have on them tells you the sort of layout and connections of what, uh, what's going on. It's really a fun way to do it. Lots of descriptions. Lot, again, I love, I'm a huge fan of random tables and lots and lots of random tables here for generating things, for getting ideas, for sort of firing your mind up. Just just fantastic stuff. And it goes on and on. I'm, I, I could spend like another hour talking about Plangea, but I just find it is an absolutely fascinating product. $20 for the PDF is a really good deal. If I intended to run this as a campaign, and again, there's just too many campaigns to run, I would definitely go pick up the physical version of this book as well. I'm sure, I'm, I'm, I'm sure that that is sound. It's a pre-order for the physical version, but you can pick up the PDF right now. Having seen the PDF, I'm definitely excited by, the way, by, by what I'm seeing here. It is one of the strongest third-party books I have had the opportunity to spotlight. So I highly recommend Plangea. Check it out. There is a link to it in the show notes below. You can pick it up there. Really, really great stuff. Can't wait to see what they what they do with it next. Back when I was talking about Spelljammer, one of the things that I that I kind of quipped about, and this again, this is a quote that I had heard. I guess we, this is both when we were talking about the one D and D next playtest, and also looking at at Spelljammer. And that's actually Spelljammer that I'm going to use the example from was people were talking about what it meant for 1D&D to be backward compatible, and somebody on Reddit quipped, 5E isn't even 5E backward compatible. And that really made me laugh out loud, and I've been hanging on to that phrase because I think it's more and more true the more we think about it. And I wanted to offer up like a specific example on a Reddit post that I, that I had read that I thought was really, was, was really apt and, and captured this idea. And then what that means for us. What does that mean for us as, as DMs? So... This follows a very common format that you see on various Reddit D&D forums, which is my DMs being a dick. Can somebody tell me what I should do about it? And a lot of times, or one of my players is being a dick. What can they do about it? You see a lot of that. So in this case, it was like my DM allowed a background fee for only one of us. And you're like, well, that sounds like a jerk DM. But then you read what happened. And he's running Rhyme of the Frostmaiden. And one of the players wanted to play a gith, like a gith Yankee or gith Zeri. And so the DM said, well, that's cool. I have these new Spelljammer backgrounds. Why don't you pick one of those? So they spick the they picked the astral drifter background from Spelljammer and said, you can be the astral drifter. And everyone else said, oh, this is really cool. The astral drifter comes with a feat and includes the magic initiate feat. So that means we all get feats too. And the DM said, no, only the astral drifter gets the, gets that feat. Now, clearly that DM is kind of hanging on a little too tight. And there are definitely ways you can house rule to give up with ones, but that DM is running the game rules as written. 
We now have backgrounds that are available that have feet, but most of the backgrounds do not have feet. So if a player chooses to pick one of the older backgrounds, they don't get a feat. But if they pick one of these two new backgrounds, they do get a feat. And Spelljammer offers no recommendations to GMs on whether or not on how to handle it if players want to play with a background that isn't one of those two backgrounds that includes a feat. Which means it's kind of funny because the backgrounds that are in Spelljammer are more compatible with the one D&D Next playtest, which isn't even begun yet which is just starting out and it certainly isn't official yet it is more compatible with that than it is with the original game that it's written for and this sort of thing already exists in other areas we've seen i've i've complained on this show numerous times you guys are tired of hearing about it of how monster challenge is all over the place within monster challenge ratings now that's true as far back as the original monster manual there are certain monsters where the challenge rating is all over the place but that isn't getting any better when you have like vampires on one side who are absolute killers and you have lunar dragons who breathe for the same amount of damage that a that a that a, that a mage does that it is it is kind of all over the place and so what that means for us and this example is like we can't trust wizards of the coast to help us with this that they're 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 not helping us with it they are offering a lot of different material and a lot of people i think are hanging on to it and saying well that's core material like if they release tasha's tasha's cauldron of everything is core material if it's in dnd beyond that must mean it's good that must mean it's it's correct and it's not there's lots of stuff that just doesn't work that way we have to be careful about all of the stuff we bring into our game first party third party house rules whatever when we are we now have both the responsibility and the authority to manage our own DD games we need to know what we're bringing in we need to know what we're excluding we need to know what kind of choices we're going to allow what kind of material we're not going to allow which magic items we're going to release you know and and this has been true since 2014 it's been true since the beginning of the game like let's be honest it's been it's been true for 50 years but it's important for us to remember it and i think it's particularly important because i don't think DD beyond does a particularly good job of letting you limit what sources or what material you're going to allow in your game you can when you share a campaign with your players for example which is fantastic but talk about a great feature of dnd beyond something that is really hard when you're running other material is i can share my campaign with my players and they have access to all the material that i purchased that is huge imagine if every pdf imagine if you bought plain gia but legally you could give a copy of that to all of the players so they could read the player section of plain gia right now there's not a great way to do that i don't think some cases they do like a player's guide a lot of places will do like a player's guide but the player's guides are like 10 20 so now you're telling all of your players hey all of you need to spend 20 dollars in order to read this book that we might only use for a few sessions that's not great. So D&D Beyond offering that stuff is great, but you can't also go in and say, yes, I want to allow material from Xanathar's guide, but I don't allow, want to allow material from Tasha's, or I'm good allowing this stuff from Tasha's for the class features, but not the subclasses or anything like that. Because you, and, and I'm not telling you which ones you should use and which ones you're not. If you love your silvery barbs, man, I'm with you, you know, enjoy silvery barbs. I'm, I am not a fan. If you like Twilight Cleric and you think it works great, don't listen to me. My opinion on that does not matter to you in your game at all. You dig it, you dig it. Go with it. If you dig everything that's out on D&D Beyond and you're like, I really don't want to limit sources, that's fine. And, and you don't have to listen to me. But if you hit the kind of problems that I tend to run into, which is I don't know which monsters I should be using, I have to look at them and take a... I can't just trust challenge rating anymore. Challenge rating is, at best, a very loose guide. And I need to look and be like, you know, if I throw a bunch of vampires, I'm going to be changing up those monster stat blocks because I don't want all my dead... I don't want a bunch of dead characters because they all just happen to be low on hit points. 
So we need to take control of our game because 5e isn't even 5e compatible anymore. It really, 5e wasn't really compatible with itself since the beginning of the game when you had a Dungeon Master's Guide that said, these are the stats that you would use to build a monster on the fly. And these are the monsters and they're not matching up at all. This is what like Paul Hughes was talking about. We have lots of areas of our game where there's sort of fuzzy things. There are certain spells that just, boy, like, you know, and, and other people, again, I, I get this where I'm like, you know, the, the, the conjure woodland beings drives me bananas, right? This idea that you can summon like eight wolves and now one player is running eight wolves on a turn. I've had people that are like, man, you're so wrong. That's not how you should run it. You should run it this way. If it's working for you, it's working. You don't need to listen to me, but I can tell you in my game, I've had it where the one player who has nine turns dominates the battle and every other player is like, oh my God, with that summon wolves. So we had to come up with other things. That's an area where Tasha has actually offered things that are vastly improved. In fact, I had one of my players where I said, I, I don't think we're going to include Tasha's in our current game. And he's like, what about the conjure spells? I was like, oh no, we're definitely going to use those. What all this comes down to. And I wouldn't expect that it's going to change when we have the new core books is that we, we have both the authority and the responsibility to manage what our game looks like. We can take house rules from other game systems. We can take pieces of D&D that we want to run. We can omit the pieces of D&D we don't want to run. We can include subclasses from some material. We can include subclasses from others. We can omit other subclasses completely. And we, you know, the only limitation we have is what our players and us are willing to agree to. And most of the time, I think players, if you can explain why you are allowing something or why you're not allowing something, it can work. That's an example where the, the DM was running rules as written and ran a background that includes a feat, but wasn't willing to make the adjustment to let other people with backgrounds also choose a feat. That DM was running it rules as written. They were running it without making any house rules or anything like that. But probably they should have a house rule. And probably that house rule should be, here's a list of feats that you can select that you can add to your background which makes sense and is actually the way the one D&D playtest works. So one of the kind of things that I'm, I'm writing about, I've, I'm already writing, I'm writing articles about it. I'm thinking a lot about it is how do we make sure that we still get to keep our hands around D&D and make sure that it is what we want it to be. And when I say we, I don't mean all of us. I mean you and me and all of my friends and all of the other people that are playing D&D. None of us have to play it the same way. And in many cases, I, I bet we don't play it the same way, or there's definitely like little things that we change. I want us all to know how we can have the responsibility and authority and hang on to it, particularly as there's this, this greater drive towards digital content, the digital, the digital platform, D&D Beyond in particular. That, that's going to be something that we're going to all have to explore together. And so that I thought was a, a, a really interesting thing. And you are most likely going to be hearing more about that as we go. The last thing I want is people thinking like, oh, I'm playing it the Sly Flourish way. The Sly Flourish way is whatever way is working for you. That's the Sly Flourish way. I have little things that I do. I, of course, offer up little tips and tricks that things that work really well for me. I expect all of us are playing differently, right? I, I, I did my little tip video saying that your prep notes are for you. you. You don't really need your prep notes for everybody else. And I had somebody who's like, I really do like writing my prep notes like it's a formal thing. It helps me internalize it. Great. You know, again, don't listen to me. If it's working for you, it's working. When I would like something compatible, what I what I want is, I would really want it that if somebody picked up the 2014 player's handbook and built a character and sat it next to a character built with D&D, &D, with, with the next version of D&D, &D, that they could play side by side. I already know I'm not going to get that because, I mean, and the, the, feat, the feat is a background thing as an example. Unless the new books say, hey, if somebody's playing with the old book, here's a way that you can use it with the old book, which I think they're going to have to do. 
Yeah. And, and, and yeah, uh, sour cookies. Why, why are these massive holes I need to fix? Watsi isn't paying me. I'm paying them. And, and they're also with the one D and D a lot of, I've, I've heard this, my friend, Sean and Teos both talked about this. Like, why is this a problem? Why were critical hits a problem? Of all of the problems we've had with D&D, critical hits were not one of them. It weren't for me. I hadn't really heard anybody say, oh, God, critical. You know, Paladin's critting with Smite is so terrible. Is it overpowered? Yeah, probably. Was it a problem? Not like freaking Feeble Mind is a problem. Not like Force Cage or Banish or Hypnotic Pattern. There's so many other things that can really disrupt a game for a dungeon master, can really kind of change how things play. Way more of those than freaking critical hits. Critical hits is not an issue. Let's do our Patreon questions. We're going to cover our final Patreon questions for August of 2022. Josh G says, what is the strongest criticism of your D&D prep advice that you have heard? Did it change the advice you give? That is a, that is a fascinating question. Probably the most critical advice that I've received is that DMing is much harder than you're saying it is. That some people, they, I've, I've, I've read, I've seen videos, I've heard people who talk about like, don't be a lazy dungeon master. And that, you know, being a, de- being a dungeon master is hard work and you need to do this hard work in order for the game to go. Has it changed it? Uh, not not particularly, because I think it's, it's one thing to have philosophical differences and it's something else to look at the specifics that we're doing. And, you know, certainly I, most of my experiences from my own experiences. And I know that those experiences aren't the same as everybody else and that some people, but I can tell you that like the number of times I've had anybody say, Hey, I've been using the eight steps and they just don't work for me is, is low. And the number of times I've had people say, Oh, you know, I don't use all your eight steps, but I use a lot of them or I've added a couple other steps and they really work for me that that works pretty well. So for me, like the original Lazy Dungeon Master, I wasn't even using the same process that I had in that book anymore. But for return, I've used it for years. So it hasn't really changed things. But it's also hard to disagree with my philosophy when my philosophy is use what works. Because who's going to say, no, you should use what doesn't work. So I know I'm in that case, it's like, well, I'm being a little bit pedantic. Like if I just say, look, use what works for you, you can't argue with that. But if I also say, use what works for you, but here's some suggestions... I've definitely had people who are like, I don't like those suggestions. And I, and I, and I try to consider what they say. I try to consider what they offer, but I don't, I don't think I've heard any specific things about my DM prep where somebody has brought something up like here's a, here's this different way and you should be doing it this way. I think you've certainly seen my style change that I've added a lot of things. I've, and if you look at the, the material that's inside the lazy DMS companion, you can see how that material has changed and evolved from the original lazy dungeon master and from the lazy DMS workbook. So you can see that there's new ideas and new thoughts about things like safety tools and things like the point crawls and, and, you know, different ways of kind of looking at this, you know, looking at this. So yeah, so I, 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 Josh, I hope that answers your question. It's a really interesting question and I'll, I'll have to think more about what, what's some of the advice that I've, that I've received that's really changed how I felt. It's, it's always an evolving process. I try to keep myself open to any of the new things that I hear, new, new approaches that I hear and evolve from the experiences that I've had. Jason K says, after the game has been going for four or five sessions, I've had a player drop a game because of life stuff. I now need to bring a new player into the game, but they never got to do the session zero or that kind of thing. How do you personally bring in new players once the game has begun? That's a good question. I would run another session zero. And I've heard other people offer this advice. A session zero doesn't have to happen only once. You can re-baseline your game regularly. You can say like, hey, for the next session, we're going to have like a a refresh of the session zero. I would almost certainly have people walk through. I, I, I would certainly recommend 
uh, walking through what you have typically walked through with a session zero with a new player. Talk to them about what the expectations are for the game. Talk to them about the, the storyline that's come on. In this case, you can introduce them to the existing characters. I would introduce them before they come with a character. Let them know what you already have. Let them know what's already been going on in the game before they make a character. And then you could either one-on-one work with them about building a character that you could bring into the game. Or you could actually spend some time, tell your group, hey, we're going to spend some time. We have a new player who's joining in and we're going to kind of rebaseline the session zero. Talk, and you can use it to kind of talk about the game with the other players too. Where do they think things are going? Where do they, are they happy? Are they happy with where things are going? So I think that it's a really good way that doing that rebaseline, that kind of stopping, stopping the campaign and saying, hey, for the next half of the next session, we're going to introduce a new character. We're going to talk about how the game's been going. We're going to kind of reestablish and reset the baseline so we all understand what's going on. And we're going to bring this new player in. I think it's a fantastic way of integrating a new player. I would not just drop them in. I've done it. I've definitely had it where, oh, I'm going to bring a new player in and we're going to have them drop right into the game. There's definitely some stumbling around where it's easier if you bring them in, if you step away from the game, get back as players again, talk, introduce the new player, talk about what's been going on in the game, talk about the other characters and see what kind of character they want to build that you think fits in. I think it is a really great, I think it's a really great way. So I would consider rebaselining, rebaselining and running a session zero again. Barbercat says, is Spelljammer too much for new players? I really want to run it, but I'm not sure if I should. I think Spelljammer is fine for new players. It is a it is a structured adventure. I would not start with just Spelljammer because it starts at fifth level and I would not start new players at fifth level. Instead, what I would recommend is starting with Dragons of Stormwreck Isle, the new starter set adventure. You could also use Dra- Lost Mine of Fandelver or you could use Dragon of Ice Spire Peak. Any of the three starter adventures, I think, would be, would be good. And the only trick is at the end of those adventures, when they get to like fifth level, you want to have them go to a coastal town and have hang out at a bar at a coastal town. Give them one final mission that sort of sends them to Neverwinter. I think the book recommends Neverwinter, but you could send them to any coastal town and you could get them fired up. I am, so so I, I'm, I'm running a game right now where I'm going to run Spelljammer and we're starting with Dragons of Stormwreck Isle and Dragons of Stormwreck Isle, at, I'm going to run an adventure in between Dragons of Stormwreck Isle and Light of Xeraxis, the Spelljammer adventure that's going to connect the two together, take them from fourth to fifth level and then start Light of Xeraxis. And I think it's going to work really well. I think it'll be, it feels like it's going to be really smooth. I think the Spelljammer setting is going to be just fine. I think can work just fine for new players. I would not, just in general, I would not start new players off at fifth level. You want to learn what it's like to play D&D with a first level character and going on. Dragon of Stormwreck Isle, I think is, is a really, really good starter adventure. I think it might be my favorite starter adventure that they've got. It's really, really excellent. It has, it, it's, it's got a whole floor. We're going to talk all about Dragons of Stormwreck Isle once it's openly available, but I can tell you, I really, I really dig it. So if you wanted to start with something like Dragons of Stormwreck Isle, then get them to a coastal town. I'm choosing Luskin, like they're going to go from Stormwreck Isle to Luskin, and then Luskin is where Light of Xeraxis is going to start. I think that that can really work. Richard S. says, we've had a few anthologies now. Heists are something you've talked about. How do you feel about anthologies overall? And what lessons do you hope they take into into the heist space? See, I I think you're talking about the new heist-based set of anthology adventures that's coming out. I think it's coming out in early 2023 that looks like heist-based stuff. 
that that I think is really good. I, I love heists overall. I love the structure of heists. I love the freedom that they have. I love that they're a great way for the DM to experience the game the same way the characters are. None of us know exactly how it's going to go. I, I like the anthologies. I think I think that it's very smart for Wizards of the Coast to come out with a regular like anthology book once a year that offers a bunch of one-shot adventures because there's lots of opportunity for people to run one-shot adventures when they can't run a campaign and now they have that. So I think the publication of a, of a, of a series of adventures and then a campaign again radiant citadel is a whole bunch of different one-shot adventures set in an area i think that's outstanding and then you have something like light of xeraxis which is a kind of a shorter because it's only fifth to eighth level but like a shorter campaign so i really i I like that structure i think that works well i think wizards of the coast probably sees that that works well that having like a a bigger campaign adventure i guess dragonlance we're getting dragonlance this year that looks like it's going to be a big campaign adventure so having that big campaign adventure for people that want to run a longer campaign but then also having these anthology adventures I work I, I think can work well and then I'm excited that they take it what lessons do I hope they take into the high space I hope that they recognize that situation-based adventures work really well for heists and that it should really be kind of like what I'm doing with my Summervine Villa product. It should be an adventure toolkit. It should be a way for the DM to set the stage, set the environment, and let the characters explore these heists and not assume that the characters are going to take any one particular approach, but recognizing this, offering options to the players on how they want to approach the heist. I think that that's really important when you're on a heist-based adventure, and I hope they take that into consideration. Bernie says, I am a proud owner of the Lazy DMs Companion. Yay! And I would love for you to elaborate on the gold per level system in one of your videos. Did you create the rewards for them to be discovered organically, or do you prefer to award gold as if the characters get a level increase? This is a very good question, especially because it's about the Lazy DMs Companion, one of my favorite things. So let's take a look at the Lazy DMs Companion. So here is the Lazy DMs Companion, and what we're talking about specifically is the treasure generator on page 22. So I wanted to have a guide in here. The Dungeon Master's Guide has a really excellent set of tables that you can use to generate treasure. There's lots of online tools that make it easy to generate treasure, but I wanted something that was like a one-page, really easy to use, just pick it and go, and not worry too much about all of the different little details and rolling on 38 different tables. So I have this gold per level section, and the idea here, this was actually generated from both material that's used in the Dungeon Master's Guide and some of the mathematics that's behind the Dungeon Master's Guide and Xanathar's Guide, and I think a little bit from the Adventurers League when they were doing limitations on gold in the Adventurers League, to try to say like how much gold you should award. And the idea here is that they are in parcels, that they're in gold parcels, and you want to award four parcels at each level. So this is the following gold parcels to quickly reward adventuring groups based on the character's average level. So this is the parcel that you would give to an entire group, not per individual. It's to, it's to a group. Now, of course, you have more groups. It might mean a little less money per group, so you can add a little bit more if you want to. And the idea is that you give four parcels this way. In other words, per every level, you would want to give a 100 gold piece parcel four times per level. I think that's what I mean, right? Reward four such parcels each level or add parcels together to create larger rewards. So the parcel, you you basically think that each level you should offer roughly 100 gold per level, or four times per level. First to second level is that, yeah, so it'd be 400 gold from first to second level divided up among the characters. They would earn about 100 gold per character 
if, if it's four, four characters. And then you can roll for it instead. So instead of doing the flat 100 gold, 1300 gold, 7,000 gold, or 70,000 gold, because it goes up significantly as you get into higher levels, you could roll for it instead. And we had a, just a really quick like 3d6 times 10, 3d8 times 100, 2d6 times 1,000, 2d6 times 10,000. Very easy dice rolling that I wanted to throw in here. It is not built so that you award it at level. Instead, the idea is that you want to think about how often you're rewarding gold during their process of leveling up. And if they if they hit a level and you haven't rewarded them, the next time they run into a large reward, just add the parcels together. And you might say, if I'm only offering one big treasure, like if especially if you're leveling pretty quickly, you might, instead of giving one parcel at a time, you just pat, patch all the, you know, smash all the parcels together into one and say, you have discovered this 400 gold piece parcel for first to second level or second to third level, right? Here's another 400 gold piece. Treat it like a big treasure hoard. So the idea is not that you reward it with level. The idea is that you have a general understanding of how much gold you're giving out. And again, this is just a guideline. You can go with whatever other approach you've got. If you want to give big treasure parcel some other way, or you don't like the amounts that are in here, you can of course change them. But the idea was just to make it easy to award treasure that is meaningful to the players, but also really fast to do. K. Ivan R says, most of the games I've run and played do not have a satisfying conclusion. This jives with what I've heard talking to every gamer I've brought this up with and received wisdom I've heard from other from people online. Maybe once in your life, you will get a, cam- a campaign that goes every week for multiple years. Only a handful of times in your life will a campaign come to a satisfying end. And for every campaign that ends, five or more will fizzle out before anything major happens. And yet you run campaign after campaign, straight bangers, two campaigns a week, and every man, I don't know what this means, every man jack of them ends properly. How do you do it? When I first read this, this is a really outstanding question, and I was like, and it really thought-provoking and, and requires more than I'm just going to be able to talk about in this show. My first question was, is that true? Is that right? Is it is it right that I am special and that my, me being able to conclude campaigns, and I have... I, I've always known that I've been very lucky, and I always talk to my players about it, and I've talked here, that I've ended like... 12 or 15 campaigns and had good endings to them in the past 10 years or so. I've run a lot of campaigns and I've run a lot of endings and I've loved them and and they've worked really well. Am I just special or is this more common than I think? So I decided to do a YouTube poll. I put up a poll on YouTube. 2,600 people voted on this. It's not a good, perfect sample of everything. It's a sample of the people who watch my videos and who happen to see this poll. So it's definitely a subset, but it's better than just my own experience. And the results genuinely surprised me. I put four buckets and it said, it's a poll for D&D players and Dungeon Masters. How often do you reach a satisfaction? conclusion in your D&D game. 26%, one out of five people said almost never, almost never have they had a satisfying conclusion. 25%, 21%, roughly one in five people said they rarely do it. So between the almost never and rarely, about half of people rarely or less frequently than rarely have a game that that comes to a satisfying conclusion 31 percent, one in three people said sometimes they have one 14 percent, which is about one in eight people say they often have it and less than one in ten seven percent fewer than one in ten it's about one in twelve people say they almost always have a satisfying conclusion so i am in this one in 12 group, right? I am in this group of people here where I almost always have had a satisfying conclusion. Now it would be, it would be inaccurate for me to simply say, well, I, okay, so I'm in this special group of people who have run campaigns that have run really well. So let me just tell you how I do it. And that will work because that hits survivorship bias. You're just looking at the traits that I had. A better study would be look at all of the different ways people are running their games 
and then look at that in the order of how many how many people are having satisfying conclusions and then figure out are the things that I'm doing actually tied are they causal to running a good game? I can't say that definitively. The best I can do with this question right now is offer what I think are probably some of the, the things that have I feel like have worked for me. These are not scientifically proven. It's very possible you are also doing these things or other people are doing these things and still not having satisfying conclusions to their game. But, but I'll offer them anyway. One of them is my campaigns are not terribly long. I run them for about a year, sometimes as long as 14 months. But of, of the campaigns that I've run since 5th edition has come out, I think I've only, I've, I've rarely had them take more than about 12 to 14 months. So that's already, my campaigns are shorter than I would say a lot of campaigns are. I don't know that that's true. Maybe everybody's running short campaigns. But because I have this fixed range, I'm more likely to have a successful campaign that is less likely to fizzle out but I'm, 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 they're less likely to fizzle out because they are more constrained. They're, they're relatively short. Now, I also run weekly games, but my weekly games run about three hours. So that, that is one thing that I think could be a possible way to have campaigns that are more likely to reach a satisfying conclusion. Another one is that I, I tend to run my games even if people are missing. I think a lot of DMs, I did another poll on this. I don't have the data right offhand, but I did another poll on this. And I think there's a lot of DMs who will not run a game if, if everybody can't be there. They feel like they need everybody at the game in order to run it. And I don't. I actually try to run what I refer to as like a six plus two group or like a six plus one. I want to have six regular members. And then I'd like to have a couple people that know that I'm running a game that I could call on to join in if I have people missing from that group of six. And by having this group, it means that I'm more likely to have a game go on even if people are missing because people are always missing. Life is busy. We got things going on. It's really easy to, to miss out on a game. By having this like six plus two group where I have six primary players who are generally expected to be there. And then I have a couple people what I refer to as on-call players. They know they can't always be be at the game they recognize that they they are they are sitting in for somebody else who's missing everybody's on board with that everybody agrees to it and i can bring them in that can work well i will run with as few as three people so i think that's something else that i'm willing to do that i don't think all dms are willing to do but i think that means that my game is more consistent it moves along it heads in a conclusion and it and it works really well i run a regular game at the same time so i tried i have a i have a wednesday night group that we've been playing dnd every wednesday night it's always at the same time we don't schedule it every week every week to week we have a wednesday group that always runs and that has been going on for i think about 15 years now i think longer about 16 years that that wednesday gang has been that wednesday group has been going on only two of the people in that group are still there from the original group well no more than that i think the two to three people that have been there for more than a decade but a lot of everybody else has kind of shifted and out. Some people have joined more recently. Some people left and then came back. Some people have left and they haven't come back. So the group changes, but that time is sacrosanct. Wednesday night, 7 p.m., we get together to play D&D. I've also been doing the thing with my Sunday group. My Sunday group moved from a game store to online. And I think the only change we had there is it used to be a two-hour game, and I expanded it to a three-hour game, and that changed a lot. But that was like years ago. I think that, that group has been going on about eight years. And that has been going on consistently. So by having a consistent time every week, 12 p.m. Sunday, we play D&D. Every week, Wednesday, 7 p.m., we play D&D. And we play with whoever shows up. We want to have as many people. The only time I'll cancel it is like if there's only two people. If like, think about how many people have to cancel. If I'm willing to run with three 
and I have a six plus two group. If I've got six regular players plus two on-call people, that's eight. It takes six people to cancel before I have to cancel the game. Six. That's pretty resilient. That's pretty robust. I'll offer one more. One more idea is that my campaigns are fixed and they're focused. I know where they're going to go. I know what the what the general idea of the ending is going to be. I they're they're not wide open things where there isn't a clear conclusion. They, I don't I don't continue them on beyond the conclusion. I know generally Again, I'm not railroading it, and I don't have like a specific outcome in mind, but I know that like in my Numenera game, they're going to face the fourth emperor. That's the goal. They're, when they defeat the fourth emperor, the campaign is officially concluded. A lot of times when I'm like published settings, I know that they have concluding, they have endings that conclude. So I think that having like a clear star in the sky that says that is the ending of the campaign, that helps me get it going. It helps the players know that it's going. It means that they're not going to fizzle out because like this thing is just going anywhere. I think having that, 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 that shining north star that we're all headed for the players are headed there i'm headed there we're all figuring out that we're going to go there i think that helps people stay involved that he helps people stay in the campaign because they also know like that's where we're that's where we're going before things change just to reiterate them the four things that i think again i don't have a scientific study of this to prove that it's very possible people are doing these four things and still they're not reaching satisfying conclusions that's something that would require more research than i can certainly do right now but it's something i definitely want to dig into but the four things that i would argue have helped me that feel like they have helped me running ongoing campaigns one i run short campaigns that last about a year two i have a group of six regular time players plus two on-call players and i will run with as few as three which means it takes it takes six people canceling before I cancel a game. So I very rarely cancel a game. Three, I run a game that happens at the same time every week. I run it weekly. I have a Wednesday game at 7 p.m. I have a Sunday game at 12 p.m. Everybody knows that that's the time to play, the, to, that we're going to play D&D. And even people with families and everything like that have worked out agreements with their families so that they can be free for those times. And I have a clear goal and a direction for the campaign that the players are aware of, that I'm aware of, so we know what North Star we're all headed for. It's a big problem. Like when I look at that and I see like half of people rarely have good conclusions that's something we should work on that's that's something we want to study so i want to i want to i want to dive into that topic more but i think that those i think that those are sound and with that we have reached the end of the august 2022 patreon and we have reached the end of the lazy dnd talk show i want to thank all of you for hanging out with me today watching the show enjoying the show listening to the show thank you all very much if you want to help support me you can do so in four ways you can subscribe to the sly flourish newsletter and get weekly dnd articles sent directly to your inbox along with a free adventure generator pdf you can go to the sly flourish bookstore and pick up any of my books including physical versions of return of the lazy dungeon master the lazy dms workbook and the lazy dms companion you can you can support me directly on patreon patrons get access to all kinds of exclusive material they also help me put on shows like this the patrons are outstanding a wonderful community of patrons you can also share this video like it subscribe to my channel pass it along tell other people about it comment on it all stuff like that anything you can do to pass along the work that i do here Thank you all very much. Have a great day. Get out there and play some D&D.